Well, welcome everybody. Um, Rand Eberhard has been a friend of ours for many, many years. We met actually through Young Life when we met your parents, I think. But Rand is going to speak tonight. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He uh, grew up in the Alfred Roswell area, and he had a life full of wreckage and delay resulting from brokenness and fear of the future. His story is one that will speak to how addicts think, the perceived and felt pressure on a family trying to live while the addiction is present, and most importantly, living into one's created purpose. I'm not going to go into a whole lot more because he's going to tell you about this. He now serves as the director of congregational care at the Church of the Apostles. He's married. He's got beautiful children. He went to Tacoa Falls Bible College. He became... Um, uh, he graduated, I should have said this earlier, from No Longer Bound. That's where he got sober. And ever since then, the Lord has had him in a capacity where he is reaching people through a church setting or through a counseling setting that are, that are struggling with the same things that Rand struggled with growing up. And his story is a powerful story. And I'm going to go ahead and pray for you, Rand, and I'll invite you up. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the redemption that you brought in Rand's life, God, and how you're using him in a mighty way every day, Lord, and how all the experiences that he, that he went through as a younger man that didn't make sense at the time are now making sense to him, Father, how you've woven this into the fabric of his testimony. Father, we just thank you for Rand and his family, his parents, for the ministry that you put on his heart, for his faithfulness to you. We just pray now, Lord, that you'll speak through him in a mighty way, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Welcome, Brother Rand. It might sound a little bit uh, prideful, but uh, I actually, for 20 years, 20 years ago, my ministry began, and it was a ministry of restoration, restoring people to the Father's will. That looked like young life for a long time at uh, North Atlanta High School. New Shari's kids. It looked at uh, looked like uh, being a youth pastor at a uh, Church of the Apostles, and then Northside Church there in town. And um, I know Frank and Lori's kids, and Steve's son. And I'm really glad to to be here tonight. The the prideful piece that I was going to share is for 20 years I've been walking in this this ministry of reconciliation, and a lot of what I want to speak to tonight. I think <laughs> is really quality material that's noteworthy and uh, certainly formative and how you guys parent um, someone who's who, who's struggling uh, and how you just experience the peace and the, the restoration of hope, faith, hope, and love in your own life um, as you co-labor in humility with whoever God sends as, as helper um, and for one another and just leaning on the faithfulness of God and what that looks like. But I have my notes and I'm going to pass out at the end of the, uh, the discussion. That way you don't have to worry about trying to write down quotes or concepts or trying to track deeply with a lot of the material that I'll cover. So <clears throat> thanks a lot for having me. John and Fair, Phil, it's nice to meet you, a, a faithful leader, 20 years of ministry, seven years with them, six years in the uh, prodigal child ministries. Um, they've reached lives across the city and state for two decades. Uh, John is uh, a 
criminal defense attorney, and I've leaned into his wisdom and counsel more than once, and fair just leading from the heart to the heart with uh, with people in the community, moms and, and, and kids, and they've made a big impact. So it's really an honor to just stand up here and be a part of what you guys are invested in and what you guys come hoping to hear. And that's uh, just wisdom and truth and grace and acceptance right where you are. So just be encouraged that, um, as John said, as Fair, uh, Fair led with, that regardless in the, in the devotional that was shared, regardless of how your loved one conducts their life, um, they are contributors to the fruit of the Spirit in your life. But the Holy Spirit is the source of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, self-control. So if they further the fruit in our lives, they shouldn't be able to remove the fruit if they're not completely independently the source of the fruit of the Spirit. Um, of course, we w- I have three girls. Two of them are teenagers. So all of what I talk about tonight, I'm about to really see how true it is for me. <laughs> you know, um, That said, j- the fruit of the Spirit, God is the source. We are grafted into the vine of life. And there's no greater joy than knowing that the Lord is a faithful God He works in the unseen, even when it's not evident to us. And our part is discerning where he's at work and joining him there. And not really being, you know, uh, not really being procrastinators in that, or burdened by that, or skeptical about that, but truly available to the revelation of God. And that comes through many things, but for one, it's, uh, it's obedience. And I've, I've learned in my own life that obedience is met with a revelation. And in John fourteen twenty one, it says, He who has my command and obeys it, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by, uh, by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. John fourteen twenty one. you can go read that again later. Because the, the, the promise and the truth in the Scripture is enough to lean on with full confidence. And when we do, we don't look past, the, uh, we don't look beyond yesterday and forget about the golden thread of grace as, as we have all heard that many times. Um, I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you my story. I'm going to share a lot of Scripture. I'm going to present questions to you. I'm going to, hit you quote with quotes and ideas and concepts that God has helped me develop through time. Uh, <clears throat> but my goal for 2022 is really unachievable. And if I make even slight progress in this goal, I think I'm going to be a far better instrument of grace in our world. And that goal is to be unoffendable. And think about what that looks like in your context as parent, as child of God, as person in the community, person in the church, and how much time we spend living in our heads about resentment and fear of the future and anxiety and what if or coulda, shoulda, woulda. And we get so hung up on all of these things that come into our lives and then we internalize our pain and then when somebody offends us, we just get it thrown all out of sorts and we can't even function. 
So my goal is also a challenge to you to really consider, am I easily offended? And how is offense hindering my missional life as parent, as person in the, in the church? And when we experience this deep victories in our spirit and in our hearts, we're shaped by who God says we are, not by someone else and their assessment of us or their rejection of us, especially our own kids. So the truth about you is what God says, regardless of that last argument regardless of not being able to get through a hardened heart, regardless of recurring conflict. So as you lean into your identity and you understand what God says, the obedience piece of Scripture and the walk with Christ becomes a passion. It becomes a want to instead of a have to. And we can't roll that out in front of our kids and say, have passion for the Lord. And I'm going to get to this in a little more depth, but the, the way that... That, that our kids negotiate and bargain and manipulate with us more than anything is shutting down spiritually and saying, yeah, I just don't buy into that. Because when they do that, that's the, that's the biggest affliction they can impose on our heart more than anything else. Forget about it, they don't graduate high school or they're not flying in 4.0 at, at Stanford. It's, if they don't care about God and they're skeptics, then... That's offensive, and that, that's a wound, and that's eternally significant. And kids are on to that. You know? They're manipulators, and they know how to get what they want, no matter, no matter how old they are. You know? So I want to unpack. Romans fifteen thirteen says, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. A lot of hope, a lot of perspective, and allowing the Lord to condition our hearts. I want to talk about identity, hope versus despair, the heart, and this thing called addiction, which leads to alienating affliction. And I want to break down in detail addiction as I understand it as a recovered addict alcoholic, and as I've worked with people um, for the last many years, and and just the life and death battle that it really is. Just uh, three weeks ago, um, I had to speak at a funeral for a 26-year-old kid that overdosed and died. And it was at Johnson Ferry, or it was at a, a Dunwoody Baptist, and it was the second largest funeral I'd ever been to. So you see how deeply lives reach into the furthest out person in our world. Everybody's life matters, even if they're video game addict hiding in some room or apartment and nobody sees them. Their lives still affect somebody they might not ever meet. So it's important to draw people out of their isolation where we try, where, where the addict or the wounded person chooses to suffer alone. And then they build defenses, really complicated ones, around why they're there. And oftentimes it looks like defense mechanisms. Blame, denial, avoidance, minim minimizing realities, uh, uh, and other things. Um, but the question that I want to lead with is, what is your created purpose? How can you be restored to the Father's will for you as an image bearer and parent? 
the most compelling evidence of a living God to me all of my life and the throes of my addiction in recovery and now in my life as a person in vocational ministry that serves as a pastor. The most compelling evidence to me that's undeniable is the fruit of the Spirit in my parents because it's been decades. You just can't argue with a changed life. You can't you can't minimize the power and love and the fire of God in somebody's life. And when you see that and you model that, you unapologetically just walk in victory and you're not putting on an act. You're just showing that your heart is accessible and that the, the wisdom of God is raining down on your life through the Lordship of Jesus Christ that sits on the throne of your heart. And that, there comes the fruit of the Spirit the ability to love deeply, the ability to experience joy, the deepest form of happiness in Christ alone, the ability to embrace peace that guards your heart and mind that transcends understanding. And you can't just conjure it up. You have to abide in the fullness of God to, to truly see this, this stuff uh, uh, unpack in your life. So be encouraged to, to live a fruitful life in front of your kids, no matter how far out they are, what questions they have, the sophisticated bar, uh, uh, tendencies that you know uh, I've once used used to describe the resistant addict um, as the person that, like the terrorist, that keeps everybody scared and negotiates with his own life, like the guy with the bomb vest who walks into the, the you know wherever he is and has everybody on edge and is fearful that everybody's going to die any minute. He keeps you scared and negotiates with his own life and just says, I'll quit if you don't do what I say. So then you conform to everything he says out of fear. And when it's not from the Lord, it, it, it's, it's subtle, but it's easy to buy into it out of fear. But, it, but, it, but perfect love casts out all fear, and God's not a, a, a God of fear and manipulation. So if you look at what's happening in your life and you go, is this marked by the love of God? Are truth and grace associated with this attitude or this action or this judgment or this stress? And if not, then just don't get on board with it. Don't I mean, entertain it, listen well, listen with your whole heart, because when you listen well, you access the other person's heart. And in doing that, when you're genuine, you're able to sow ch- seeds of gospel of peace into the soil type that the Lord determines what that looks like. But we get to condition someone's soil type, the soil type of their heart, based on how they see in us the evidence of a living God. So never give up. That's the point. Codependency is caring more about someone's problem than they do, working harder on their life than they do. We sacrifice our peace when we try to control someone or something outside of our control. Expectation, here's one of my key teachings. Expectations are premeditated resentment. When you roll out in someone's life an expectation that's non-negotiable, that says measure up in order to receive favor, love, blessing, recognition, affirmation, whatever it is, you're creating this mile marker or a, a set of, a series of, of markers that say, I'll affirm you once you get to this one. And then they're conditioned in that to feel invalidated, insecure, inferior. And then this fear of action 
kind of takes this course and then they just sit there and say, why even try? My parents are always mad at me anyway. I don't even care anymore. I'm just, you know. So the, the goal is to re- replace gradually through self-awareness and sensitivity to the other expectations with confidence. And when you instill confidence in someone else, it's because you're affirming progressively, mile for mile, mark for mark, even slight progress. And in doing that, there, there's such recognition there that when it's genuine and when it's um, uh, from your heart, it truly will motivate that person to function with confidence. And that's a lot deeper, and it can also look like, depending on stage of life, where they say, I'm going out uh, tonight, and you say, all right, I expect you to be home by 11. You already set them up for failure, inevitable drama and conflict. The goal is to say, hey, I trust you to go out because the last two times you did, you honored me. So the goal is to create this honor system where they actually care enough about not disappointing you. And that comes through love and friendship and encouragement and this heart-to-heart connection. Uh, A lot more on that, but for now you get the uh, impression there that replacing expectation with confidence goes a long way. Our, Our goal as parents is to set goals and strategies that empower and are invitational, furthering confidence and and your son or loved one. Um, Addiction is an ever-increasing desire for something that has an ever-decreasing ability to satisfy. A growing desire that doesn't deliver anymore. And it can be to anything. Promiscuity, video games, drugs and alcohol, rage and anger. You can be addicted to anything that makes you feel better in the moment. But the indicator that it's not from the Lord is it creates collateral damage. And sometimes that damage is so great you can't even step in and intervene and help. And John can tell you stories about that for the next five days in a row without stopping as a criminal defense attorney. And you, I'm sure, have your own stories. So it's a disease, hear this, that captures your mind and uses it against you. This chatter that the ego convinces you that you're correct all the time. So you become your own, you become the most important person everywhere you go, except for you feel like the most inferior person everywhere you go. And then you start telling yourself how great you are, and then as soon as you run up on conflict, you just break down because your identity likely as an addict is hum- hangs on your ideas and on your perceived value instead of identity in Christ. So, because we talk to ourselves in our own voice, we always think we're right. And that's alienating affliction. Then we're trying to understand him or her, and they're trying to understand us as people walking with the Lord that have different morals and values and lives that have shaped us to this point. And you're trying to understand this over here that looks like weed culture, which is a whole full-blown thing. You know, you're trying to relate to person over here that's in a completely different world. And you raise them, you love them, you do anything for them, but they have evolved into something that you really have no frame of reference for. So this alienating affliction makes it impossible to understand one another. So people ask me all the time, do you think I'm an addict or alcoholic? 
really key self-assessment or assessment as you look on somebody's life, if you develop an apathetic nature around responsibilities or consequences during the course of your activity, whatever it is, if it's dark in nature, um, if you develop apathy around responsibilities, consequences, relationships, you have this apathetic thing that just says you kind of drink, you start drinking at people instead of with them to show them your answer. Um, there's a pretty clear indication that it's okay to invite somebody to help you. And if a person can't get there by way of self-realization, it's important to lean into teachings like this and what happens on a night like this where you're empowered to hear things and present them in a new light. So you think that your thoughts are your true self, and the problem is that we're all naive enough to listen to our self-talk and assume that it's real. Again, if it's not marked with the love of God, the peace, the grace of God, then it might not be from the Lord. So, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and the voice will set us free. The cycle of shame and the cycle of despair are the opposite of this. Let me share this quote first. The paradox of soul contentment is this. When we die to ourselves, our soul comes alive. So, in the context of parenting, when you present your idea, but don't try to close the deal, you offer your wisdom and your perspective on things, and you pray that it takes root in in your child's heart, it's important to speak truth and love, but it's also important to show up with grace and compassion. So the question is, are you discerning enough in the moment to ask the Lord to give you discernment to what the situation calls for, truth or grace? We've got to be truth-tellers. We've got to care enough about our loved one to speak truth and love, to restore to the Father's will, um, to be parents, to be the voice of a shepherd that leads and guides them, even if they're adults. Uh, so Romans 10 really lays out a beautiful perspective of um, if despair, let me say real quick, if despair and shame are this condition of the heart and this, this functioning in life where a person goes to go pout and live this defeated self-condemnation, beat myself up lifestyle, then we as parents have to take a look at are we modeling that? And then also... Are we throwing somebody into what I call the shame cycle? Because we do that to one another. Our, our, our society, our culture has a, a system in place that you pay restitution. You pay the penalty for your crime, and that's good. Um, we're accountable to our actions, but we have the tendency to tune into TV to see who falls from grace every day. And now we got cancel culture, and everybody's fearful of being anything. So... <clears throat> Uh, the question is, are we throwing somebody into this cycle of shame and saying, go sit in that cycle until I say you get to come out? And we want to make sure that we don't do that to the people we love. Don't throw them into the shame cycle. Present your truth. Say, hey, when you did this, I lost confidence in my, my you know, ability to hand you my car keys or, my, or, or, or pay your cell phone bill or whatever it might be. I want to grow in confidence for you because I, I love you, I value you no matter what. But don't put somebody in a shame cycle 
as if they have to pay off 40 hours of community service and $700 in a criminal fee. You know, we, we want them to be empowered with confidence, but you have to lay out for them a game plan to increase confidence, them and you and you and them. So Romans 10, starting in verse 6, really grabs this concept of the paradox of soul contentment is this. When I die to myself, my soul comes alive. That's John Ortberg's quote. When I die to myself, my soul comes alive. But the righteousness that is by faith says, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. That is, with your mouth, Jesus, uh, Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. A proclamation, a belief in the heart um, of a resurrected Christ and salvation. For it is with your heart that you believed and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So there's a heart thing here and there's a proclamation thing here. And it's with our hearts that we believe and are justified. And that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an event, but it's also a growing thing because the world creates affliction. And again, to be unoffendable is almost an impossible task but it's a goal that I set out for this year to be unoffendable and to be a true instrument of grace and and to walk in victory and freedom and peace that externals don't really affect me if my heart is fortified in truth and my heart burns with love it's like if you're above offense and you're above reproach there's a lot of victory there to be had so that's my initial challenge. So Romans 10, verse 11, As Scripture says, anyone who believes, trusts in Him, will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The heart is critical. A question I always ask, what's blocking your heart? If there's disconnection um, interpersonally with people, the question I ask is, what's blocking your heart? Because if love is coming into your heart, the truth of God's love as is accurately accurately presented is absolute truth in the Bible. Uh, Jesus loved us enough to die for us. He, he loved us enough to come down from perfection into our mess to pay the price so we wouldn't have to. And when we block our hearts from the simple truth, the powerful truth of of Christ, and so much more than just that, then it's easy to be disconnected. Addiction is the powerful enemy of humanity's desire for God. It displaces and supplants God's love as the source and object of our deepest true desire. So addiction... And humanity's desire for God has been interrupted, you know, through addiction. So when we're when we we stop making progress, and we give up on the people we love the most, uh, it's because we're pulled back into this cycle of dysfunction. So choice is where sin dwells. Desire to change. This is one of my key quotes. 
Desire to change is one-dimensional. Decision to change is everything. Everyone sits around with maybe or here's why not or yeah, I kind of would like to change, but um, nothing's really going good in my life. So every time I try to do the God thing, it doesn't work. Um, everybody has desire to change. All of us here tonight have desire to change. Decision to change is everything. True change takes course when we mourn the loss of a lifestyle. And that's what decision for change looks like. It's not just trying to modify our behavior, trying to do differently, trying to think differently about our problems. True change is all about framing in your entire lifestyle that would be considered secretive or dysfunctional or isolated and naming all of what that is and beginning to mourn the loss of that. And most people aren't willing to do that. So a lot of people don't change on a deep heart level. Attitudes, action, periods of sobriety, conformity to house rules, whatever it is, there's slight change, but deep heart change and radical transformation of lifestyle doesn't happen until you mourn the loss of a lifestyle. And when I have that conversations with 20s and 30s, they look enamored. They don't even know what to do with it because they start thinking about weed culture or bar life or post-college, you know, uh, frat boy lifestyle continues on into the 30s with Xanax, cocaine, drink, weed. Um, people don't want to, they don't want to mourn the loss of a lifestyle. And that's what it comes down to. If you don't put the old to death, new life will not resurrect. Uh, I've talked quite a bit here, and I know I have at least until the top of the hour because I want to unpack my testimony. Um, but do we want to do we do we want to ask any questions at this point, or do we want to hold them for the end? Does anybody have anything they want to ask? I'll keep pressing in, and then we'll we'll go. Uh, so, I grew up in Alpharetta Roswell area. Uh, when I grew up years ago, back back in those days. Um, it was a lot different than it is now. Everybody on the east side of 400 was neighborhood boys. Everybody on the west side of 400 was like mill worker, farm town, horse farm, hardcore people. And we blended together at Haynesbridge Middle School and Milton High School. And I had a really uh, diverse upbringing with people from all walks of life. And with that was the move into Roswell. My mom's worked in Roswell at Smith and Meadows uh, dental office for 30 years and I've always had apartments in Roswell and I've always you know growing up in that area it's uh, Roswell Road is considered by the the DEA uh, and the Department of Justice a high drug traffic area and back in the day when I was caught up in that underworld I had really bad, good and bad, if you will, uh, experiences up and down Roswell Road that goes right into the heart of the city and connects many other roads, and it's high drug traffic area where we got cartels living right down here on Roswell Road, literally, you know, and the underworld is pretty dark, and the more you, the, the deeper you get into this underworld thing, the more facets of that life you see 
really emerge from the darkness. For example, when you go into the bar scene and you're in your 20s, it starts out with neighborhood people having drinks at dinner. And then it ends up being this, this post-dinner crowd that looks like probably alcoholics. And then post-alcoholic crowds starting to look like cocaine and narcotics crowd. And then when you're really in the underworld in there, you start getting into the crystal meth crowd or the heroin crowd. And then all of a sudden you see the emergence of cartel activity where it's like, oh my gosh, I'm just some little neighborhood, just nothing out here hanging with these guys that are literal killers. You go, how did I get here? So there truly is right down the street from here just underworld facets that we don't even think about. And we might grab a milk right behind a guy who's a cartel leader, you know, at Publix. And... And I'm not, I don't tell you that to scare you. I tell you that experientially, that somehow I slipped into this underworld and got caught up in a, in a place where I was strung out on drugs to the point where I was doing five drugs a night and looking out a, a, you know, a party at my parents' house or at, a, at my, one of my apartments, and I, I felt like a lab rat. I was on so many drugs, I couldn't even function. And... Uh, Living in that lifestyle, not only is there a mental, emotional, relational, spiritual, vocational, collateral damage to every facet of your well-being, um, there's also this high-risk mentality or this high-risk part of living with dangerous situations and decisions that could affect the rest of your life. So living in that, I thought for sure I was going to end up dead or in prison. It was just a matter of when. So why not hit the gas and live full bore, no holds barred type thing? And it became comical. And it became like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to go wild and be Monday morning storyline. And I prided myself in that. Then I wound up on probation for the next for five years um, without a driver, driver's license in my 20s. Um, kicked out of high school at Milton High School the final semester of my senior year and a total embarrassment to my family that have always been community type people godly people again I said at the beginning of the talk that the evidence of Christ and my parents was the most compelling above all else so be encouraged by that you know one they can't outrun intercessory prayer two your life lived in front of them is true resurrection power so grow in the Lord daily. Don't think about when they used to go to church with you. Grow in the Lord daily and let that speak right into their lives and be invitational. Not I got it all figured out, come to me and I'll tell you what you need to know. But this invitational thing that is grace-based and compassionate. So um, I wouldn't receive the love that was offered me Primarily because I have what I would later learn to be evil companion soul ties. And what that means is when you run with people that aren't about kingdom business, they're about the enemy's business. And they're about themselves. And when we sit on the throne of our lives, we realize that our best effort at life leaves us wanting a lot. Leaves us broken from family. Leaves us hopeless to step into our full potential. So misery loves company. You got one guy trying to make progress 
you imagine a boiling pot of crabs one of them's trying to climb out and the rest of them just pull him right back into the heated water until they all die that's essentially what that's all that's a metaphor for an evil companion soul tie where you just can't get away it's just locked in and it becomes part of your lifestyle so there were there were markers in my life where God was trying to get my attention. I was invited to a neighbor's baptism, and I sat at at North Point Church twenty something years ago, strung out, hopeless, mad at the world, hated myself, hated everybody around me, and I knew deep within my spirit that I was in God's house, and it mattered to me, and I wanted it, and I, I, I my soul was crying out for this, this place of, of love and acceptance. I, li- I lived in some, some flat-out drug houses, and I'm not proud of that. Uh, but learning what I've learned through living in that underworld and God sparing me from that world, it's informed me to reach the furthest out person. So I go prison ministry, jail ministry, street ministry, and I'm not shocked by anything I hear. I've heard a lot of stuff that a lot of you can, can attest to, uh, John especially as a criminal defense attorney, but nothing really catches me off guard, and I shared with um, Well, let me keep going. So I was arrested five times without a driver's license, on probation, strung out, no hope, um, lived, I was homeless there for a while, my dad did everything he could to rescue me, bailed me out of jail, uh, paid off a drug dealer that I owed a lot of money to. My poor dad, <laughs> you know, it was like, he, anyway, so he bailed me out of some serious stuff. Um, one of the guys that, that I was running with, just to give you a frame of reference for the, the, the level of society that's so dark that there's just no concept of anything more moralistically or, or or biblically he uh he left a, a, one night I was at his house and and he jumped on his motorcycle and ripped out of there high on drugs and emptied this is in Roswell emptied a nine millimeter into a corvette a guy that didn't pay him off he emptied his gun into this corvette and just drove off the gated apartment community just emptied the clip into the car it's like <laughs> could care it's almost like you have a death death wish when you you do something that dramatic that same guy a couple of years later lived in hotels and just sold drugs out of hotels and that was his life well one of his so-called best friend who was an evil companion soul tie followed him on a drug deal he wrecked his motorcycle drunk and high was laying there on the side of the road on Holcomb Bridge Road right by the river laying there for dead he went and stole the eight balls of cocaine and the money off of him called the police left the cell phone on his chest and left that's the friendships in the drug world okay so these are the kind of people that i was hanging out with and i thought it was cool and it's just not it's not a sad and um so god sent helpers along the way when i was at that that stage of my life not only was I invited to the baptism and that had an impression on my heart, but there was this retired guy who came through the grocery store that I worked as the receiving manager as, and he read the Word of God to me every time he saw me. 
and I was providing drugs to everybody on the staff in this place. And I thought I was cool. And I was drinking on the job, and um, every day I drank on the job because I had such despair and hopelessness. I just didn't care. Um, but I was a relational person, so I moved along the ranks in the workspace, and you know, we just was too insecure to be promoted, so I'd drink the opportunity away. Instead of say, saying no, I'd just show them no. So this old guy came through, he was a retired state farm agent from Alpharetta named Mr. Mulkey. And he came through and he read the word to me. And every time he did it, it hit me in a new way. In this one moment, he spoke the word, a really common verse, something like I'll do all things through Christ who will strengthen me is I think what he read. Um, and I believed it for the first time for me, not just conceptually for everyone, but I believed it for me, and the living word really cut my heart, and it began to set me free from myself. Because that's what addiction is. When you sit on the throne of your life, and it's miserable and lonely, but drugs and alcohol and activity that's habitual in nature is reliable, because for a minute it offsets our pain. It gives us a sense of belonging. The euphoric effect of drugs and alcohol can be appealing. But then the consequences that follow become, you know, something you can't keep up with. So when he read the word to me, I believed it for me and I agreed with it and started to get on with this reality that God was calling me to something bigger than myself. So shortly after that, I was given the opportunity to go into an intake interview at No Longer Bound. I went, I stayed. Nine months later, my ministry began. I graduated the program. The only education I had was a certificate from DUI school. Pretty high achievement, huh? <laughs> um, but I met my wife the week that I got out of No Longer Bound at a Young Life camp at Sharp Top Cove. My dad was a speaker. He spoke about Prodigal Son. Uh, I walked up in front of a crowd of 300 people. Y'all might have been there. Y'all were there. They were there, Frank and Lori Bishop. And... Um, it, it, it was the first time I spoke in front of a crowd of people. There was about 300 there, kids and families. First time I spoke in front of a crowd of people in 14 years. And the first time ever without having some drink. So my, my confidence, my anxiety was through the roof. Um, but my wife came up to me and we had a, a, a healthy dating relationship and got married a year and a half later went to Tacoa Falls Bible College and moved back to Atlanta, worked in urban youth ministry at North Atlanta High School for eight years as the team leader. Met Shari's kids there, and I love her kids as well. And um, God just put me on this trajectory uh, through youth ministry of being a family restoration worker. And I went to seminary at Fuller uh, Seminary, and then now I work at, at Church of the Apostles, and my, I'm right in the center of my calling as a restoration worker um, in the Lord. So no matter what's going on in your life, uh, one of the encouragements that I can give you is that uh, the agape love of God is a God kind of love. It gives without expecting. It's self-giving. It's selfless. Where God is present and working, there will be love with that kind of love where the Lord is present and at work it'll be clear that it that he's at work 
So we must know what is real that we might base our feelings on what is true. That's a quote that I read somewhere. But knowing what the truth of God says and not what people are telling us through arguments or intensity or uh, giving reason for the behavior that they have, or maybe that's us at times, but basing our... uh, the reality and what's happening in the word so we can get the right frame of reference on the power, the love, the truth and grace of God will help us through the whole thing. So one of my pieces of advice to you is this. Ask your your child how they're doing instead of what they're doing. Because one thing I've learned through the years is that when you're not confident about your answer, it's really a burden to be asked what you're doing. You know, because it's it's this inferiority thing that unfolds where most people aren't really at. I mean, some people are asking just out of general interest, but the per- perception is I don't measure up and I'm not really proud of my answer. And you probably don't even care anyway. You're just asking me and I don't have a, a really good report because I'm not on par with everybody else in the neighborhood. I mean, my neighbors used to see me walking down the street with a brown bag like what are they going to ask me what I'm doing? I'm walking. I got a 12-er walking down the street going to my parents' house as an adult. Um, so ask them how they're doing. Really listen to their heart and access their heart that you might sow seed there. Uh, fear is a chief activator. Being a fault finder is another one of my flaws in addiction and recovery. When, you, when your heart is unsettled, you look externally to blame or condemn someone else to make yourself feel better. Uh, Addiction to anything, again, a disease that captures our mind, uses it against us, um, and convinces us that our self-talk is truly us. Listening for the voice of the Lord. Self-focus, self-pity versus uh, um, self-righteousness. Those kind of things are markers of of a person that's self-focused. in closing, I'll say this. And tell your, your loved one this, and I'll give you my notes. If you're, able to walk, if you're able to walk into a room and love every person in that room, you're the most powerful person in the room. And that's the challenge that if we grow in that and exercise that, God uses you as a restoration worker, as an influencer, as an extension of his hand and his grace um, into a world that takes way more than it gives. So ask the right questions. Ask good questions. That's what Jesus did throughout Scripture. And when you do that, the Lord invites you into his redemptive work. And there's no greater feeling than that. And that's part of why I wake up every day to be included in the mission of God and I've never been happier so I love you guys and thanks for letting me share thank you Thank you. Ram, can you explain when that man at the grocery store read you the word did he literally open up his Bible or was he just yeah he literally would open up the word I um he would, he would literally just open the Word and just read it right there in front of everybody. And when he did it, I just... The first couple of times, it didn't have a big effect on me. But then the living Word, as it is, it stands on its own. 
And if we live it out, we really embody our faith, it's going to cut people. You know, but it's not going to cut them with condemnation and beat them up. It's going to draw the heart. The Holy Spirit will work through His Word. And, you know, as it says in Colossians, um, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word, the word is active and living. Well, thanks for giving me this after, after I took all those notes down. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's why I sent it out at last. I'm sorry. I should have hit you with it. Um, could you could you drill in deeper on what taking offense is? And I'll say that in contrast to being disappointed or depressed that your loved one is still moving in these behaviors. to your disappointment not being about how how I am being hurt or inconvenienced but but just general disappointment for them kind of a long question yeah (laughs) Uh, for the contrast in taking offense versus being upset and emotionally Burdened, I guess. Yeah. yeah. By the, the condition of the situation. No, I think I think it's completely reasonable to be disappointed and and to anticipate somebody stepping into their potential. And when they're not, there's gonna clearly be frustration and sadness and even resentment. But what we have to do is go to the Lord and and let him speak into our problems. So what we don't do to, in our world today is think deeply about our problems. We think externally about them. But when, So what I mean by that, and, and so, uh, Steve, I know for sure, would, would know the, the teaching on roots and fruits, where you look at fruit in your life, and if it's negative, like let's say that you have a, a recurrence of sadness or resentment, there's a root system that that's feeding on that's not just circumstantial to that moment. So if you sit with the Lord and try to see, assess the, the condition of your heart, and you go, Lord, why am I always so resentful or fearful or sad? And think about what the root system of that might be informing that bad fruit. And it could go all the way back to uh, 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 family of origin, early childhood development, being judged, being pressured by your own parents, judging them for that and reaping that judgment. That's that's his own teaching that I I probably didn't do a good job explaining. But the other part of tension and and beating ourselves up is receiving correction as rejection. And the same applies with parenting. If somebody doesn't comply with your idea, that it's easy to feel rejected and take that personal as if they're willfully resisting your wisdom. And it could be something totally different. So then again, you got to seek the Lord and go, Lord, how can I articulate the truth and love and grace of what I'm trying to see my son step into as his full potential? And give me the peace to know what to fight for and what not to, and know when to walk away and not hang my identity on my idea. 
because that's the tendency. Correction is rejection. Idea hangs on your identity, and then it's they don't conform, and then you just beat yourself up, and it's like, oh, I can't get through. And I mean, that's a long answer to a, a good question, but I hope some of that makes sense. Um, but the, the not being offended in general, um, that's my goal for the year is to be unoffendable. Um, when that, that particular concept, if each of you will go sit with the Lord and let him show you the depths of what that means for you, I can tell you for me it's really broad, but if you sit with the Lord with that thing, he's going to open it up, and I think it's really going to give you some unexpected freedom. Uh, because, it, 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 again, what I, what I started talking about was the fruit of the Spirit that the Lord hands down in your life as you're grafted into the vine. That's growing in your understanding of Christ, the wisdom of God. And as you grow in understanding of God's character and nature, you conform to this willingly. And then the words of Christ says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. But most of us don't do that um, continually, especially the lost person. Put you on the spot, Rand. So I know you, you talked about lots of different things, but sort of, excuse me, yeah. If, if you could sort of isolate or give us like the predominant thought that you had that basically led to your addiction and then on the other side, what was the predominant thought you had that led to your restoration? Like, can you... Good questions. Not single out, but can you help sort of crystallize what Yeah, I. for you? That's a great question, Steve. You know, I had, I had so many notes. A lot of them I didn't even get to because I just kept talking. <laughs> but, um, you know, when anger and sadness inform our decisions and we live by our emotions, that's what threw me into this cycle of despair where you're looking for to medicate. You're looking to just not feel for a minute. So I've always told students over the years, don't allow a feeling a substance or a person to guide your decisions. So early on in, in, in my teens, I used marijuana for the first time in seventh grade. And then from there, the thing about weed, marijuana, is it, is it ramps up social anxiety really bad. And kids think at 15, they think, ah, oh, I just chill out. It doesn't really bother me. I just relax and I need it really bad in order to, what well, you see when the habitual marijuana use comes in, the whole skepticism thing follows. I know thousands of students, thousands. Okay, I was a youth pastor in the neighborhood 16 years. So, and I was a front lines guy, they can tell you. Like I wasn't the dude sitting at the desk waiting on somebody to come make me feel important. I was out there at the schools. So when a person, peer pressure, uh, a chemical dependency, um, Meaning, like you, you do drugs to the point where you can't not do them. Now you're, you have a stronghold or you're hooked on them. Or uh, person, substance, or emotion informs your decisions, then you get caught in that cycle where you can't get out unless somebody intervenes. So, when marijuana as a gateway drug and you laugh at that as a kid, like that can never happen to you, it throws you into this suspicion thing and skepticism thing. 
and where you're cut off from the Lord and now you're waiting on God to prove himself to you as if he owes that to you outside of Romans chapter 1, the creation of the world that you can't argue with and what I talked about, fruit of the Spirit on our lives and many other things of how God intervenes and coincidence, God's way of remaining anonymous while also faithful, you know. Um, but so that that early on was was how I, I was uh, I was thrown into unguarded moment blind spot of marijuana smoke early on, alcoholic uh, drinking alcoholically and going to baseball and soccer practice by the time I was seventeen, um, living this this two different lives. I was on the on the phone with a with a woman who's on the verge of a divorce right now. I was on the on the way here. Uh, it was probably anyway. I was on the phone with her on the way here, and her husband has this like secretive world that we can't work with him until we know who he is. It's like we say in recovery that a fault recognizes half corrected, but if you can't lay your life before us, we don't know what we're working with. John needs the word. He needs the whole story before he can defend you. He can't. He can't put you up there on the stand and all of a sudden get blindsided with. This whole other dimension of unseen life, and that—that's what it comes down to—is um, rescuing someone out of their destructive ways by winning the right to be heard. You know, young life quote: um, "Winning the right to be heard looks like relational ministry, and being consistent and stable and predictable, and not mad and." off the rails this week and next week you're all godly and then the other week you're something else but being consistent so they know who they're dealing with even if it's being fair and being firm truth and grace of Christ and discerning what the situation calls for uh, as far as the the re, uh, would you say the restoration side yeah uh, what motivated that yeah. yeah okay so when I was at No Longer Bound, I was thinking about this just the other day in preparation to share tonight. I walked down the hill at 25 years old and walked into this this house, and I'm looking around at dudes that were a lot older than me, many of which were institutionalized, been in prison more than most of their adult life, tatted up. I mean, and, and I'm sitting there going, oh, my gosh, man, where am I? What has happened? I'd been arrested five times at that point. I was worse off than any one of them, you know. And and I'm sitting there going, I guess this is me for nine months, and here I am. And it was in that place that I just broke down totally, and realized that I was at the end of my road, and the whole charade was over, and I began to mourn the loss of my lifestyle. And it was in that mourning process that the true self emerged. And God told me who I was, and I started just walking in victory, and not in a cocky way. The thing that the thing that breaks down that whole a cocky edge or a prideful mentality is the love that's discernible in our lives. That's the equalizer, and that's the mark of the Holy Spirit. And if we have that, I do anything for anyone, you know, and I love everybody right where they are. Uh, I got problems. Twenty years sober, I, I still have problems, and got a lot longer to go than I've than I've ventured. But uh, that was the changer, the, the mourning, the loss, breaking down, and realizing that I wasn't going to quit. And then I got on with life and, and the healing process.
and not to put words in your mouth, but you realize you were who you were supposed to be, who God made you to be, and so that inferior, that anxiety went away with that. So you yeah. no longer felt the need to cover that up. Yeah. And let me, let me, that's a great point. Because being in youth ministry is the ultimate blame game. Everybody says, well, my son doesn't believe and he doesn't want to be involved in what you do. You're just not real good at your job. <laughs> you know? And so I was the fall guy for, for a lot of people and some, and some of that was perceived and some of that was real. But I had to do some serious soul searching. When I said a minute ago about thinking deeply about our problems, I would go to the Lord with this stuff and ask Him to help me see with the eyes of my heart what my part is and what was not based in reality. And in doing that, I realized one thing. We fear more than anything else the loss of quality of life. Even us as adults that God blesses us. When we can come to terms with take it all, then we can really start experiencing some true redemptive freedom. Um, And when I realized that opinions of people in my vocational context, which was ministry, youth ministry, had opinions about me that were negative, I'd be sleepless and anxious and resentful and avoid people and chit-chat about them. And then I had to take an honest look at can I be okay if all of a sudden I'm cutting firewood in Minnesota to support my family next month? Can I, be the, can I have the joy of the Lord and the peace of God there? And if the answer is yes, then externals have zero effect on my well-being. And I've had to truly embody that in, in, in pastoral ministry. Because when you're in a public-type role, people have opinions, and you gotta, you got to love them right where they are and not avoid them and truly try to serve them with compassion. And it's amazing how the Lord works in that. Um, but it, it is a victory point when you can get to that place of being, and I'm not totally there, believe me, so don't hear me wrong, but that, that's a key factor uh, of turning a corner. You know, especially if you're wrapped up in addiction and you're going, what does the future have for me? Uh, um optimistically speaking into your kid's life, how are you doing, not what are you doing? Back to that. I hope that answered a little. Yeah, it does, and just for the group, you know, I have known Rand for a while, and Rand made a big difference in my family's life and other families too, so uh, I, I admire what you do and what Aaron and John do. I mean, it, it says a lot about who you are, and we're thankful for that, to see those signs of hope Thanks for that. Praise God, Steve. Thank you. Um, did your parents play a part in this of you going to No Longer Bound? Because I know we deal with a lot of parents who have children over 18. Uh-huh. And they may be living at home in the basement still, family are deprived, using drugs or whatever. Did your parents do some tough love that got you to go to No Longer Bound? Um, or did, was that something that you made the decision on your own? Um, in other words, like, I know parents have to step in at some point when yeah. they're over 18 and kind of set the boundaries to help them get out and make a better life for themselves. Yeah. So I didn't know if your parents did that or not. Well, I was so naive and caught up in addiction. 
that I wasn't fully embracing reality. Okay, so I went into the probation office and I was going to fail the drug test, four out of five narcotics, some of which were felonies, which would have looked like prison. I still wasn't fully comprehending what was at stake here. So I went in and negotiated through two of the frontline intake counselors, and then they brought in the closer. (laughs) So at that point, I was like, oh, all right, never quite been hammered like that. And, you know, um, but my mom was the one who took me over there, even though we had just left the probation office. And he said, if you don't go to that program and graduate, you're just going to come back and finish probation in jail in Forsyth County. Still didn't comprehend with that. I was thinking about the weed I had at my house and the $10 I had for to buy another 12-er. So it, it requires a parent to step in and be stable and be rational and logical with, here's what helps. So when you ask for help, the goal is to get somebody to ask for help, okay? But once they ask for help, they've got to they've allow you to help them. In other words, their best effort isn't getting the traction that they need. So when someone asks for help, you should be allowed to come in and say, look, we're, you know, I'm going to resource you with other voices, but let's run a game plan that is life-giving for you that you buy into. And it's not just me handing down some burden on you. So it's always got to be invitational. It can never be this confrontive thing where they feel judged and alienated and alone and misunderstood it's always got to be this optimistic, encouraging, compassionate, but also truth-telling dialogue where grace and truth kind of work themselves out. But yeah, it's critical that parents step in and care enough about their child to tell them the truth and to roll out a game plan. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. Are you from recovery? Do you go to AA or do you have to go like you need that now or? Your life has been totally changed, transformed. Well, so for the last 20 years, I've been, I've been uh, I'm connected relationally with life-giving people. One of the things that I ask people that you should do this with your loved one, write a list of names of people that they, let them write a list of names of people they interact with the most. And right next to that person's name, if they have a list of 10 or 20 friends or coworkers or whoever, Next to their name, put giver or taker. Because a blind spot is a relational one where a well-meaning young person doesn't even realize that 15 out of the 20 people they interact with the most, they might consider a taker. What is a taker? When they walk away from you, do you feel burdened, depleted, resentful, misunderstood, burned out? Or when they walk away from you, do you feel edified? heard, valued, and understood. And you're looking for givers of life that walk in the fullness of God's love, and and you need those kind of relationships. So that's one of the subtleties of recovery and and addiction is the social aspect. Whereas, ah, I grew up with these kids. I'm never never selling out on them. Or are they givers or takers? (laughs) You know? Um, Did that answer it? Okay. Oh, okay, so that was the other, okay. Yeah, so I I periodically do. 
uh, and I've worked the 12 steps, but my recovery, uh, I, I'm a recovered sober 20 years. So I'm not, I'm not an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. I have addictive tendencies. Okay. But my identity is what Christ says. And I've dealt with extreme baggage in my life with unforgiveness, soul ties, uh, many other things that informed my using. Okay. And now because my heart has been transformed and I have the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in me to set me free from myself and free from the world, I don't try to stay sober. So it's not even an issue, thank God. I have been triggered even at 20 years. I, I, I was triggered. And I had to go do some soul searching and be a student of life and really think about, well, why did that guy at the bar trigger me? Showing my, my arrogance, I was on a date with my wife just uh, uh, at roughly my 20-year mark. And the guy at the bar was drinking margaritas, and he was loud and chaotic. It was a busy restaurant. I was officiating a wedding that weekend, and I felt all spiritual and important. Okay? <laughs> and the dude's over there rambling at the bar and showing my arrogance. I was like, sure is loud in here. You know? <laughs> And just called him out, and then I and then my wife is just mortified and embarrassed, and you know. But that that kind of thing, it's like you're never completely set free from self, and it's not the alcohol that's sitting on the shelf or the weed over there. It's the alcohol in the heart that's the real problem. And because I've done a lot of work there, um, I don't thank God I don't have to try to stay sober. Uh, so therefore, I don't go to meetings. I read the Word of God every day, and I don't just read it like a little devotional. I feast on the Word, and I sit in it. And I don't sit in it all day, every day, but I, I really, I go to the... This thing right here has been in jail cells, has been in the worst ICU situations. It, personal one, today I was sitting with a, with a young guy ministering right out of, out of my... I call it my dagger, the sword of the Spirit. This is a little dagger. Um, it's been everywhere. And this thing's been with me for about 15 years. So because of that, it's my program. You know, walking in the overflow of what God's doing in my life, that's my program. So. Man, when did you realize when you were in the height of your addiction, I guess when you were living at home, that my parents were modeling Christ to me even in the height of my addiction, addiction, and still love me even at my worst. When did you connect those dots and realize the impact they had on their, on you by the way they lived their life? Well, even in the depths of addiction, I always had like a, a, a real deep love for my grandmother. She died when I was in the program. Um, <clears throat> my little brother died 13 years ago in addiction. It devastated our family. Uh, I didn't get into that. I, I don't really do a good job in my testimony. It's always all over the place, and I don't track with the important. But um, realizing the relationships that you value most is really what keeps us grounded. And that's why it's important to nurture those relationships in a fair and faithful way because they truly are maybe the only Bible, as you've heard plenty of this Christian talk, they're the only Bible people will read. Right. And you've heard that a lot, and it's really true. And 
throughout the course of my recovery and in my addiction, um, I realized that all along as what kind of held, anchored my hope a little bit. But it wasn't until maybe a couple of years ago that I started using that language. That, and and I, I, it just dawned on me in a sermon, God gave that to me, that my parents truly were for decades the evidence of a living God that loved me, you know, right where I was, you know. So, yeah, I think that's how that happened. Anybody else? I have a question. So when were you when you decided um, that youth ministry was your calling? Yeah, good question. Um, so when I when I went to Tacoa Falls College, Stevens County is in one of the one of the that particular county has the highest poverty rate pretty much in the state. They have the highest illiteracy rate in the state. So um, one of the things I had to do to graduate was community service, a certain number of hours per semester. And I would go into the state-run senior care facility and visit people at the end of their life. It was awful conditions, just a tough scene. But it was God's training ground for me to do what I do now every day. also in that season of life I worked for a high school dropout prevention program as somebody had been kicked out their senior year Uh, and it was a diversion program and we were referred kids from the Department of Juvenile Justice so these kids were from Stevens County up there in the foothills and they thought they were like Crips and Bloods that were true gangbangers and they're just country guys (laughs) <laughs> you know, so it was working with those kids that I came back to Atlanta and coached football at North Atlanta High School when I was I was in a youth ministry context and an APS school that I was like stepping into God's plan for me. And at that point, I knew I had my undergrad was counseling psychology with a minor in biblical studies, and I'd been equipped to move in as a mission worker in an urban context. And, re- and because of my street life, I knew how to connect at that level. And it was life-giving to step into that kind of calling. So you read in my notes, the happiest, most productive person is those with clarity of purpose. But also, when you know who God wants you to be, you'll never want to be anyone else. When I tell kids that, they just, it's like, just shocked by the truth of what that means. You know, so stepping into that of God's call on my life, and for 16 years, that's what I did. How does your ministry work now? Restoration worker. Yeah, yeah. So, so at a big church, you have a pastoral care guy, and usually that looks like response-based ministry. So when a crisis happens in the church hospitalization, death, funeral. Uh, traditionally, the pastoral care person tends to that. I, I do that every day, and that, that a majority of my time is that. But I also have built a restoration ministry and responding to uh, brokenness and hopelessness 
and coming up with setting a person's feet on this pathway to peace. And I have a, I have a guy who works with me on my team at the church who's a certified addictions counselor. In fact, he might be somebody you have come talk. Uh, but he worked at the extension in Marietta for six years as a senior counselor. And uh, so we have a full-blown, I, I primarily speak hope and optimism into someone's life and then hand them off to uh, Bruce Serbone, who walks with them in the context of recovery counseling, anger management, blended families, whatever it is. And, you know, also deal with benevolence, um, just restore a person's hope, faith, hope, and love as, a, as an initial responder. So response and restoration is what I mean in those, those two. So, Do you have any like Bible studies or recovery groups that someone could come to or get involved in? Yeah, we do. We, uh, we have a, uh, um, a program at Church of the Apostles called Cross Current, which is an eight-week yeah, it's an eight-week uh, program that traditionally had been marketed for people struggling with sexual brokenness. Yeah. Um, but it's grown f- more, uh, uh, it's more diverse in that it deals with just broken life and not just that. Yeah. Uh, and then it feeds into a six-month program called Living Waters. And so you then, have to go to one before you go to the other? Yeah, you have to go to Cross Current first. Okay. And it happens twice a year. And uh, but I can I can send that information. Um, but in the summer, every summer, I always do a series on hope and healing is the theme in my ministry. So I do an eight week course in the summers on on that kind of stuff. And uh, this past summer, we did a peace a peacemaker, peacemaker, peacekeeper, that kind of thing. The Ken Sandy book. Uh, but there's a lot of recovery-based stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. So you, what would someone do? Just contact the church to find out uh, when you were going to do that? Uh, you're, you're welcome to go on the Apostles' website and email me if anybody ever wanted to get in touch with me um, under congregational care or reach out to the bro cards and they'll share my information or get it from me tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but parents are just longing for a mentor to come along beside them, like they did our son, a young life leader, came along beside him and walked that path with him. Um, as far as finding someone, because a lot of the churches, they don't understand addiction. Yeah. You, know, and you almost need somebody that understands, like you do, recovery, addiction. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's just hard. So, so anybody can be an influence, you know, anybody can be a good example. So it's about praying the right person forward, but it's more so about praying that your son or daughter or loved one's heart would be open to hearing from whoever God sends. 
praying that person forward, but also praying for a heart that's willing to hear. Because you get so into yourself that you shut down, you can't hear from anybody. You know, and I used to, I grew up thinking that counselors were a paid friendship and I wasn't going to talk to some guy who had some agenda. <laughs> so, but, um, but yeah, that's uh, you just pray the right, that the Lord send the right helper. And, and primarily that, you know, I, I've told a number of kids through the years, why don't you reach out to your parents' network of friends or, or consider who in your parents' network of friends that you've known through the years that you got some respect for. You like the way he or she conducts himself. Forget about money or status or whatever. You like the way they function. And then invite your son or daughter to go interview that guy or, or, or woman. Go sit with them and just hear where they're coming from. And, and, and that is a good stepping stone to get to the eventual uh, mentor or discipler. You know, is learning how to receive from people. Learning how to just sit with somebody. Because a lot of people that are struggling in addiction have such insecurity. Their first question is, mine was, if somebody invited me somewhere, I'd say, can I drink or smoke? Or if no, then I'm definitely not going. You know? And then the, the second question is, and the reason why giant churches grow bigger is because nothing's expected of a kid relationally. So there's this anonymity thing where the giant churches grow giant. They walk in and walk out, and no, nobody calls them by name, and they've been there five years. So the, the, the process is teaching kids to be relational, even just a little bit. In a digital world, in a demanding world, a judgmental world. Yeah. Well, thanks, y'all. You've made me feel important. <laughs> Thank you.